0: Part 2 of Chapter 2 of They Who Knock at Our Gates, A Complete Gospel of Immigration, by Mary Anton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Zach Katstein. Judges at the Gates, Part 2. We arrived at this conclusion by a theoretical analysis of the qualities that carry a man through life today, And that was fair reasoning, since the great majority of aliens are known to make good, if not in the first generation, then in the second or the third. Any sociologist, any settlement worker, any census clerk will tell you that the history of the average immigrant family of the new period is represented by an ascending curve, The descending curves are furnished by degenerate families of what was once prime American stock. I want no better proof of these facts than I find in the respective vocabularies of the missionary in the slums of New York and the missionary in the New England hills. At the settlement on Elridge Street, they talk about hastening the process of Americanization of the immigrant the country minister in the Berkshires, talks about the rehabilitation of the Yankee farmer. That is, the one assists at an upward process, the other seeks to reverse a downward process. Right here, in these opposite tendencies of the poor of the foreign quarters and the poor of the Yankee fastnesses, I read the most convincing proof that what we get in the steerage is not the refuse, but the sinew and bone of all the nations. If rural New England today shows signs of degeneracy, it is because much of her sinew and bone departed from her long ago. Some of the best blood of New England answered to the call of westward ho, when the empty lands beyond the Alleghenies gaped for population. While on the spent farms of the Puritan settlements, too many sons awaited the division of the father's property. Of those who were left behind, many, of course, were detained by habit and sentiment, love of the old home being stronger in them than the lure of adventure. Of the aristocracy of New England, that portion stayed at home, which was fortified by wealth and so did not feel the economic pressure of increased population. Of the proletariat that remained, on the whole, the less robust, the less venturesome, the men and women of conservative imagination. It was bound to be so, because wherever population is set in motion by internal pressure, the emigrant train is composed of the stoutest, the most resourceful of those who are not held back, by the roots of wealth or sentiment. Voluntary emigration always calls for the highest combination of the physical and moral virtues. The law of analogy, therefore, might suffice to teach us that with every shipload of immigrants, we get a fresh infusion of pioneer blood. But theory is a tightrope on which every monkey of a logician can balance himself. We practical Americans of the 20th century like to feel the broad platform of tested facts beneath our feet. The fact about the modern immigrant is that he is everywhere continuing the work begun by our pioneer ancestors. So much we may learn from a bare recital of the occupations of aliens. They supply most of the animal strength and primitive patience that are at the bottom of our civilization. In California, they gather the harvest. In Arizona, they dig irrigation ditches. In Oregon, they fell forests. In West Virginia, they tunnel coal. In Massachusetts, they plant the tedious crops suitable to an exhausted soil. In the cities, they build subways and skyscrapers and railroad terminals that are the wonder of the world. Wherever rough work and low wages go, we have a job for the immigrant. The prouder we grow, the more we lean on the immigrant. The Wall Street magnate would be about as effective as a puppet if it were not for the army of foreigners who execute his schemes. The magic of stocks and bonds lies in railroad ties and in quarried stone and in axle grease applied at the right time. A hairy man might sit till doomsday, gibbering at the telephone, and the stock exchange would take no notice of him if a band of nameless dagoes a thousand miles away failed to repair a telephone pole. New York City is building an aqueduct that will surpass the works of the Romans and the average new yorker will know nothing about it until he reads in the newspaper the mayor's speech at the inauguration of the new water supply our brains our wealth our ambition flow in channels dug by the hands of immigrants alien hands erect our offices rivet our bridges and pile up the proud masonry of our monuments Ignoring in this connection the fact that the engineer as well as the laborer is often of alien race, we owe to the mere muscle a measure of recognition proportionate to our need of muscle in our boasted material progress an imaginative schoolboy left to himself must presently catch the resemblance between the pick-and-shovel men toiling at our aqueducts and the heroes of the axe and rifle extolled in his textbook as the sturdy pioneers. Consider, without prejudice, the chief difference between these two types is the difference between jean overalls and fringed buckskins. Contemporaneousness takes the romance out of everything. Otherwise, we might be rubbing elbows with heroes. Whatever merit there was in hewing and digging and hauling in the days of the first settlers, still inheres in the same operations today. Yes, and a little extra, for a stick of dynamite is more dangerous to handle than a crowbar and a steam engine makes more widows in a year than ever the indian did with bloody tomahawk and stealthy arrow there is no contention here that every fellow who successfully passes the entrance ordeals at ellis island is necessarily a hero there are weaklings in the train of the sturdy throng of foreigners nobody knows better than i i have witnessed the pitiful struggles of the unfit and have seen the failures drop all around me. But no bold army ever marched to the field of action without a fringe of camp followers on its flanks. The moral vortex created by enterprises of the resolute sucks in a certain number of the weak-hearted, and this is especially true in mass movements where the enthusiasm of the crowd ekes out the courage of the individual. If it is not too impious to suggest it, may there not have been among the passengers of the Mayflower, two or three or half a dozen, who came over because their cousins did, not because they had any zest for the adventure? When we remember that the Pilgrim Fathers came with their families, we may be very sure that that was the case because the different members of a family are seldom of the same moral fiber. No doubt the austere ambitions of the voyagers of the Mayflower made them stern recruiting masters, but our knowledge of men in the mass forbids the assumption that they were all heroes of the first rank who stepped ashore on Plymouth Rock i have little sympathy with declaimers about the pilgrim fathers who look upon them all as men of grand conception and superhuman foresight an entire ship's company of columbuses is what the world never saw it takes a wizard critic like lowell to chip away the crust of historic sentiment and show us our forefathers in the flesh lowell would agree with me that the pilgrims were a picked troop in the sense that there was an immense preponderance of virtue among them, and that is exactly what we must say of our modern immigrants if we judge them by the sum total of their effect on our country. Not a little of the glory of the Pilgrim Fathers rests on their own testimony. Our opinion of them is greatly enhanced by the expression we find in the public and private documents they have left us of their ideals their aims their expectations in the new world let us judge our immigrants also out of their own mouths as future generations will be sure to judge them and in seeking this testimony let us remember that humanity in general does not produce one oracle in a decade very few men know their own hearts or can give an account of the impulses that drive them in a particular direction we put our ears to the lips of the eloquent when we want to know what the world is thinking and what do we get when we sift down the sayings of the spokesman among the foreign folk an anthem in praise of american ideals a passionate glorification of the principles of democracy let it be understood that the men and women of exceptional intellect who have surveyed the situation from philosophical heights are not trumpeting forth their own high dreams alone if they have won the ear of the american nation and shamed the indifferent and silenced the cynical it is because they voiced the feelings of the inarticulate mob that welters in the foreign quarters of our cities i am never so clear as to the basis of my faith in america as when i have been talking with the ungroomed mothers of the east side a widow down on division street was complaining bitterly of the hardships of her lot alone in an alien world with four children to bring up in the midst of her complaints the children came in from school well said the hard-pressed widow Bread isn't easy to get in America, but the children can go to school, and that's more than bread. Rich men, poor men, it's all the same. The children can go to school. The poor widow had never heard of a document called the Declaration of Independence, but evidently she had discovered in American practice something corresponding to one of the great American principles. The principle of equality of opportunity and she valued it more than the necessaries of animal life even so was it valued by the fathers of the republic when they deliberately incurred the dangers of a war with mighty england in defense of that and similar principles the widow's sentiment was finally echoed by another russian immigrant a man who drives an ice wagon for a living His case is the more impressive from the fact that he left a position of comparative opulence in the old country. Under the protection of a wealthy uncle who employed him as a steward for his estates, he had servants to wait on him and money enough to buy some of the privileges of citizenship which the Russian government doles out to the favored few. But what good was it to me, he asked. My property was not my own if the police wanted to take it away. I could spend thousands to push my boy through the gymnasium, and he might get a little education as a favor, and still nothing out of it if he isn't allowed to be anything. Here, I work like a slave, and my wife works like a slave too. In the old country, she had servants in the house. But what do I care, as long as I know what I earn I got for my own? I got to furnish my house, one chair at a time in America, but nobody can take it from me, the little that I got, and it costs me nothing to educate my family. Maybe they can, maybe they can't go to college, but all can go through grammar school, and high school too, the smart ones, and all go together, rich and poor, all are equal, and I don't get it as a favor. Better a hard bed in a shelter of justice than a stuffed couch under the black canopy of despotism. Better a crust of the bread of the intellect freely given him as his right than the whole loaf grudgingly handed him as a favor. What nobler insistence on the rights of manhood do we find in the writings of the Puritans Volumes might be filled with the broken sayings of the humblest among the immigrants, which, translated into the sounding terms of the universal, would give us the precious documents of American history over again. Never was the bread of freedom more keenly relished than it is today by the very people of whom it is said that they covet only the golden platter on which it is served up we may not say that immigration to our country has ceased to be a quest of the ideal as long as the immigrants lay so much stress on the spiritual accompaniment of economic elevation in america nobly built upon the dreams of the fathers the house of our republic is nobly tenanted by those who cherish similar dreams but dreams cannot be brought before a court of inquiry A diligent immigration commission with an appropriation to spend has little time to listen to Joseph. A digest of its report is expected to yield statistics rather than rhapsodies. The taxpayers want their money's worth of hard facts. But when the facts are raked together and boiled down to a summary that the businessman may scan on his way to the office, behold, we are no wiser than before for a host of interpreters jump into the seats vacated by the extinct commission and harangue us in learned terms on the merits and demerits of the immigrant, as they conceive them after studying the voluminous report. That is, the question is still what it was before, a matter of personal opinion. The man with the vote, realizes that he has to make up his mind what instructions to send his representative in Congress on the subject of immigration. And where shall he, a plain practical man unaccustomed to interpret dreams or analyze statistics, find an index of the alien's worth that he can read through the spectacles of common sense? There is a phrase in the American vocabulary of approval that sums up our national ideal of manhood. That phrase is a self-made man. To such we pay the tribute of our highest admiration, justly regarding our self-made men as the noblest product of our democratic institutions. Now, let anyone compile a biographical dictionary of our self-made men from the romantic age of our history to the prosaic year of nineteen fourteen and see how the smell of the steerage pervades the volume there is a sign that the practical man finds it easy to interpret like fruits grow from like seeds those who can produce under american conditions the indigenous type of manhood must be working with the same elements as the native american who starts out as a yokel and ends up a senator. Focused under the microscope of theoretical analysis or viewed through the spectacles of common sense, the average immigrant of today still shows the markings of virtue that have distinguished the best Americans from the time of the landing at Plymouth to the opening of the Panama Canal. But popular judgment is seldom based on a study of the norm especially in this age of the newspaper. The newspaper is devoted to the portrayal of the abnormal, the shining example, and the horrible example, and most men think they have done justice when they have balanced the one against the other, leaving out of the account entirely the great mass that lies between the two extremes. And even of the two extremes, it is the horrible example that is more frequently brought to the attention of the public. Half a dozen Italians draw knives in a brawl on a given evening, and the morning newspapers are full of the story. On the same evening, hundreds of Italians were studying civics in the night schools, inquiring for classes at the public library, rehearsing for a historical pageant at the settlement, and not one word about them in the newspaper one jewish gangster makes more copy than a hundred jewish boys and girls who win honors in college so also is it the business of the police to record the fact that a greek was arrested for peddling without a license while it is nobody's business to report that a dozen other greeks chipped in their spare change to pay his fine the reader of the newspaper is convinced that the foreigners as a whole are a violent, vicious, lawless crowd, and the fewer of them we have, the better. Could the annual reports of libraries and settlements be circulated as widely as the newspapers, the American public would not be guilty of such errors of judgment. But who reads annual reports? The very name of them is forbidding. It becomes necessary, therefore, to explain the newspaper types that jump to the fore in every discussion of the immigrant. First of all, we must get a good grip on our sense of proportion. To speak of immigrants as undesirable because a few of them throw bombs or live by gambling, is about as fair as it would be for the world to call us Americans a nation of dissolute millionaires and industrial pirates, because Harry Thaw drank himself into an insane asylum, and a Rockefeller swept a host of competitors to ruin. But the bomb thrower and the gambler are extremely undesirable. Look at the black hand outrages. Look at the Rosenthal case. I. I have looked, and I see plainly that these horrible examples are due to the same causes as any shining example that could be named. Each is the product of the qualities the immigrant brought with him and the opportunities he found here to exercise them. The law-abiding, ambitious immigrant who came here a beggar and worked himself into the ranks of the princes found his opportunity in our laws and customs which enabled the common man to make the most of himself. The blackmailer's opportunity was provided by the operation of corrupt politics, which removes police commissioners and impeaches governors for trying to enforce the law. The Rosenthal case brought forth Lieutenant Becker, and an investigation of the spread of the Black Hand terror discovers political bosses behind the scenes. We have laws providing for the deportation of alien criminals. Why are they not always enforced? When we have found the broom that will sweep the political vermin from our legislatures, we shan't need to look for the shovel to keep back the scum of Europe. The two will go together. In the whole catalogue of sins with which the modern immigrant is charged, it is not easy to find one in which we Americans are not partners. We who can make and unmake our world by means of the ballot. The immigrant is blamed for the unsanitary condition of the slums when sanitary experts cry shame on our methods of municipal housecleaning. You might dump the whole of the east side into the German capital and there would be no slums there because the municipal authorities of Berlin know how to enforce building regulations, how to plant trees, how to clean the streets. The very existence of the slum is laid at the door of the immigrant. But the truth is that the slums were here before the immigrants. Most of the foreigners hate the slums, and all but the few who have no backbone get out of them as fast as they can rise in the economic scale. To Move uptown is the dearest ambition of the average immigrant family. If the slums were due to the influx of foreigners, why should London have slums and more hideous slums than New York? No, the slum is not a byproduct of the steerage. It is a sore on the social body in many civilized countries due to internal disorders of the economic system. A generous dose of social reformation would do more to effect a cure than repeated doses of restriction of immigration. A whole group of phenomena due to the social and economic causes have been falsely traced in this country to the quantity and quality of immigration. Among these are the labor troubles such as non-employment, strikes, riots, etc., England has no such immigration as the United States, and yet Englishmen suffer from non-employment, from riots and bitter strikes. Whom does the English working man blame for his misery? Let the American working man quarrel with the same enemy. If wage cutting is a sin more justly laid at the door of the immigrant, a minimum wage law might put a stop to that. The immigrant undoubtedly contributes to the congestion of population in the cities, but not as a chief cause. Congestion is a characteristic of city life the world over and the remedy will be found in improved conditions of country life. Moreover, the immigrant has shown himself responsive to direction away from the city when a systematic attempt is made to help him find his place in the country. There's the experience of the Industrial Removal Office of the Baron de Hirsch Foundation as a hint of what the government might accomplish if it took a hand in the intelligent distribution of immigration. The records of this organization, dealing with a group of immigrants supposed to be especially addicted to city life, kill two immigrant myths at one stroke they prove that it is possible to direct the stream of immigration in desired channels and that the jew is not altogether averse to contact with the soil both facts contrary to popular notions a good deal of the anti-immigration feeling has been based on the vile conditions observed in labor camps by another turn of that logic which puts the blame on the victims A labor camp at its worst is not an argument against immigration, but an indictment of the brutality of the contractor who cares only to force a maximum of work out of the workmen and cares nothing for their lives. An indictment also of the government that allows such shameful exploitation of the laborers to go on. That a labor camp does not have to be a plague spot, has been gloriously demonstrated by Goethals at Panama. What Goethals did was to emphasize the man in working man, with the result that Panama, during the vast operations of digging the canal, was a healthier, happier, more inspiring place to live than many of our proudest cities. The workmen came away from the job better men and better citizens and the work was better done, and with more dispatch, and with less expense than any such work was ever done by the old-fashioned method, where workers are treated not as men, but as tools. There may not be another Gothels in the country, but what a great man may devise, little men may copy. The labor camp must never again be mentioned as a reproach to the immigrant who suffers degradation in it, or the world will think that we do not know the meaning of the medals which we ourselves have hung on gothel's breast immigrants are accused of civic indifference if they do not become naturalized but when we look into the conditions affecting naturalization we wonder at the numbers who do become citizens facilities for civic education of the adult are very scant and mostly dependent on the fluctuating enthusiasm of private philanthropies. The administration of the naturalization laws differs from state to state and is accompanied by serious material hindrances. While the community is so indifferent to the civic progress of its alien members that it is possible for a foreigner to live in this country for 16 years, coming in contact with all classes of Americans without getting the bare information that he may become a citizen of the United States if he wants to. Such a case, as reported by a charity worker of New Britain, Connecticut, makes a sensitive American choke with mortification. If we were ourselves as patriotic as we expect the immigrant to be, we would employ Salvation Army methods to draw the foreigner into the civic fold. Instead of that, we leave his citizenship to chance, or to the most corrupt political agencies. I would rather not review the blackest of all charges against the immigrant, that he has a baleful effect on municipal politics. I am ashamed of the implications. But sensible citizens will talk and talk about the immigrant selling his vote and not know whom they are accusing. Votes cannot be sold unless there is a market for them. Who creates the market for votes? The ward politician behind whom stands the party boss, alert and powerful. And behind him, the indifferent electorate who allows him to flourish. Among immigrants of the new order, the wholesale prostitution of the ballot is confined to those groups which are largely subjected to the industrial slavery of mining and manufacturing communities and construction camps. These helpless creatures, in their very act of sinning, bear twofold witness against us who accuse them. The foreman, Who disposes of their solid vote acquires his power under an economic system which delivers them up body and soul to the man who pays their wages and turns it to account under a political system which makes the legislature subservient to the stock exchange but let it be definitely noted that to admit that groups of immigrants under economic control fall in easy prey to political corruptionists is very far from proving any inherent viciousness in the immigrants themselves. Neither does the immigrants' civic reputation depend entirely on negative evidence. New York City has the largest foreign population in the United States, and precisely in that city The politicians have learned that they cannot count on the foreign vote because it is not for sale. A student of New York politics speaks of the uncontrollable and unapproachable vote of the ghetto. Repeated analysis of the election returns of the 8th district, which has the largest foreign population of all, shows that politically it is one of the most uncertain sections in the city. Many generations of campaign managers have discovered to their sorrow that the usual party blandishments are wasted on the east side masses. Hester Street follows leaders and causes rather than party emblems. Nowhere is the art of splitting a ticket better understood. The only time you can predict the east side vote is when there is a sharp alignment of the better citizens against the boss ridden. Then you will find the naturalized citizens in the same camp with men like Jacob Rees and women like Lillian Wald, and the experience of New York is duplicated in Chicago and in Philadelphia and in every center of immigration, ask the reformers. How often we demand more civic virtue of the stranger than we ourselves possess, a little more time spent in weeding our own garden will relieve us of the necessity of counting the tin cans in the immigrants backyard as to tin cans the immigrants are not the only ones who scatter them broadcast how can we talk about the foreigners defacing public property when our own billboards disfigure every open space that god tries to make beautiful for us it is true that the East Side crowds litter the parks with papers and fruit skins and peanut shells, but they would not be able to do so if the park regulations were persistently enforced. And in the meantime, the East Side children, in their pageants and dance festivals, make the most beautiful use of the parks that a poet could desire. There exists a society in the United States the object of which is to protect the natural beauties and historical landmarks of our country. Who are the marauders who have called such a society into being? Who is it that threatens to demolish the palisades and drain off Niagara? Who are the vulgar folk who scrawl their initials on trees and monuments, who chip off bits from historic tombstones, who profane the holy echoes of the mountain by calling foolish phrases through a megaphone? The officers of the Scenic and Historic Preservation Society are not watching Ellis Island. On the contrary, it was the son of an immigrant whose expert testimony given before a legislative committee at Albany, helped the society to save the falls of the Genesee from devastation by a power company. This same immigrant son, on another occasion, spent two mortal hours tearing off visiting cards from a poet's grave, cards bearing the names of American vacationists. Some of the things we say against the immigrants sounds very strange from American lips. We speak of the corruption of our children's manners through contact with immigrant children in the public schools when all the world is scolding us for our children's rude deportment. Finer manners are grown on a tiny farm in Italy than in the roaring subways of New York. In contrast, our lunch counter manners with the table manners of the Polish ghetto where bread must not be touched with unwashed hands, where a pause for prayer begins and ends each meal. And on festive occasions, parents and children join in folk songs between courses. If there is a corruption of manners, it may be that it works in the opposite direction from what we suppose. At any rate, we ourselves admit that the children of foreigners before they are Americanized, have a greater respect than our children for the fifth commandment. We say that immigrants nowadays come only to exploit our country because some of them go back after a few years taking their savings with them. The real exploiters of our country's wealth are not the foreign laborers, but the capitalists who pay them wages The laborer who returns home with his savings leaves us an equivalent in the product of labor. A day's service rendered for every day's wages. The capitalists take away our forests and our watercourses and mineral treasures and give us watered stock in return. Of the class of aliens who do not come to make their homes here, but only to earn a few hundred dollars to invest in a farm or a cottage in their native village, a greater number than we imagine are brought over by industrial agents in violation of the contract of labor law. Put an end to the simulation of immigration, and we shall see very few of the class who do not come to stay." And even as it is, not all of those who return to Europe do so in order to spend their American fortune. Some go back to recover from ruin encountered at the hands of American land swindlers. Some go back to be buried beside their fathers, having lost their health in unsanitary American factories and some are helped abroad on crutches, having lost a limb in a mine explosion that could have been prevented. When we watch the procession of cripples hobbling back to their native villages, it looks more as if America is exploiting Europe. Oh, that the American people would learn where their enemies lurk! Not the immigrant is ruining our country, but the venal politicians who try to make the immigrant the scapegoat for all the sins of untrammeled capitalism, these and their masters. Find me the agent who obstructs the movement for the abolition of child labor, and I will show you who it is that condemns able-bodied men to eat their hearts out in idleness, who brutalizes our mothers and tortures tender babies, who fills the morgues with the emaciated bodies of young girls and the infirmaries with little white cots, who fastens the shame of illiteracy on our enlightened land and causes American boys to grow up too ignorant to mark a ballot, who sucks the blood of the nation, fattens on its brains, and throws its heart to the wolves of the money market. The stench of the slums is nothing. To the stench of the child labor iniquity if foreigners are taking the bread out of the mouth of the american working man it is by the maimed fingers of their fainting little ones and if we want to know whether the immigrant parents are the promoters or the victims of the child labor system we turn to the cotton mills, where 40,000 Native American children between 7 and 16 years of age toil between 10 and 12 hours a day while the fathers rot in the degradation of idleness. From all this, does it follow that we should let down the bars and dispense with the guard at Ellis Island? Only insofar as the policy of restriction is based on the theory that the present immigration is derived from the scum of humanity. But the immigrants may be desirable and immigration undesirable. We sometimes have to deny ourselves to the most congenial friends who knock at our door. At this point, however, we are not trying to answer the question whether immigration is good for us. We are concerned only with the reputation of the immigrant, and incidentally with the reputation of those who have sought to degrade him in our eyes. If statecraft bids us lock the gate, and our national code of ethics ratifies the order, lock it we must, but we need not call names through the keyhole. Mount guard in the name of the republic if the health of the republic requires it. But let no such order be issued until her statesmen and philosophers and patriots have consulted together. Above all, let the voices of prejudice be stilled. Let not self-interest chew the cud of envy in full sight of the nation. And let no syllable of willful defamation mar the oracles of state. For those who are excluded when our bars are down are exiles from Egypt, whose feet stumble in the desert of political and social slavery, whose hearts hunger for the bread of freedom. The ghost of the Mayflower pilots every immigrant ship, and Ellis Island is another name for Plymouth Rock. End of chapter 2